Welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Debate Podcast, where consensus is optional but proof of thought is required. I'm your host, Richard Yan. Today's motion is today's blockchains can't increase TPS without taking a hit on decentralization. Today's guests are from two different public blockchains, Coda and Solana. The CEO of BlocksRoute came on as special co-host. So Coda came to this topic from the angle that adding full nodes will further decentralize the network but slow down performance. And Solana started by asserting that only the voting nodes mattered because they alone would provide the censorship resistance, which is the key to decentralization. As usual, the debate then evolved and covered a lot more ground. We got into things like weak subjectivity and Moore's law, and at the end, meandered into the topic of nation-state attacks. I definitely enjoyed hosting it. Now, while you were here, be sure to also check out our previous episodes too. We featured some of the best-known thinkers in the crypto space. If you would like to debate or want to nominate someone, please DM me at blockdebate on Twitter. Please note that nothing in our podcast should be construed as financial advice. Okay, without further ado, let's dive right in. Welcome to the debate. Consensus optional. Proof of thought required. I'm your host, Richard Yan. Today's motion: Today's blockchains can't increase TPS without taking a hit on decentralization. To my metaphorical left is M. Ray Tekisaup, arguing for the motion. He agrees that today's blockchains can't increase TPS without taking a hit on decentralization. To my metaphorical right is Anatoly Yakovenko, arguing against the motion. He disagrees that today's blockchains can't increase TPS without taking a hit on decentralization. That is, blockchains can scale without sacrificing decentralization. And then, to my metaphorical middle, is my special co-host Yuri Klarman, who will be moderating the debate with me. Great to have you, Emre, and welcome back to the program, Anatoly and Yuri. Thanks for having us. Great to be back. Likewise. Great. So here's a bio for the three gentlemen. Amri is the head of business development at O1 Labs, the company behind Coda Protocol, the world's lightest blockchain. Coda swaps the traditional blockchain for a tiny cryptographic proof that tackles the scalability trilemma and makes it easier to develop crypto apps that run natively in the browser. Previously, Amri was in business development at Coinbase and product management at Intel. Anatoly is founder and CEO of Solana. A layer one public blockchain built for scalability without sacrificing decentralization or security, and in particular, without sharding. He was previously a software engineer at Dropbox, Mesosphere, and Qualcomm. Yuri is CEO and co-founder of Blocksroute, a layer zero solution aiming to solve scalability bottleneck for all blockchains. In particular, the solution operates at the network layer and can be proven to treat all nodes fairly in propagating blocks. Yuri is an interdisciplinary networks researcher. His specialty includes alternative content distribution networks, trustless peer coordination, and security. As usual, the debate has three parts: an opening statement from both sides, starting with Emery. The second round is the body of the debate, with me directing questions to the debaters. Both sides are highly encouraged to follow up with their opponent after hearing answers on the other side, and of course, they're also free to respond to each other's points raised during the opening statement. The last round is audience questions selected from Twitter, and we'll end with concluding remarks from both debaters. Currently, our Twitter poll shows 39% in favor of the motion and 61% against it. That is, most believe TPS can go up without sacrificing decentralization. 
After the release of this recording, we'll also have a post-debate poll. Between the two polls, the debater with a bigger change in percentage votes in his or her favor wins the debate. Okay, so let's go ahead with the opening statement. And the first question is actually for both of you. Can you please clarify the concept of decentralization that we're discussing today? It seems reasonable to say that everything else being equal, you want a network with as many independently controlled consensus nodes that produce blocks as well as full nodes that validate state. When the motion talks about taking a hit on decentralization, in your mind, which set of nodes is decentralization referring to? So Emery, please go ahead. So for this motion, it prioritizes in terms of decentralization definition, full nodes, because that's where we believe the current bottleneck is. Um, however, I'd first like to take a step back and um, let me share why we believe decentralization is at least as important as DPS and why it's, it should not just be a lip service to a meme that we have in the industry. So if you look at the current value created by public blockchains today, at least 80% of it resides on the two most decentralized blockchains. And obviously the question asks, you know, the definition of decentralization, but even without a definition, we intuitively know that these are Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? And this value also includes all the tokens on Ethereum where, you know, a clear majority um, of, of third-party tokens reside. And why is this? Um, it, it's an interesting question. Um, but I'd like to explain it with a quick real life example. So as you mentioned before, my current role at Coda, I was at Coinbase. And um, most recently I was heading up the business function of USDC, the stable coin that Coinbase collaborated on with Circle. And you know, as we were starting it off, it, it first started on Ethereum, which was a no-brainer decision. But as we started exploring, trying, you know, growing it and adding it to other chains, the first thing we asked is, you know, are any of them actually decentralized enough? Why, why is that question? Um, and well, it turns out what makes a stablecoin a stablecoin and not, for example, Venmo, um, is the ability to tokenize it without having to worry about the security of the platform you tokenize it on, right? Um, you, you take it for the most part for granted. Um, this is, you know, as opposed to something else where it's pseudo secure or pseudo decentralized, let's say, again, not taking on anyone, but let's say like Stellar, um, you, you start thinking of, you know, legal recourses you may have to take um, with the centralized entity behind the chain in case something goes wrong, because the probability of something actually going wrong has just increased from infinitesimal in the case of Ethereum, for example, to a couple percentage points. And those percentage points actually matter a lot from a business perspective when you have billions of dollars of, of value. Um, so once we accept that it is important, Again, the question becomes, well, well, what is it? And it is a hard one, I'll be honest, um, but there's two sides to it, as you said. Um, and we've decided to focus, at least for this motion, on the full node count um, because, well, frankly, it is the easier one to quantify and compare apples to apples uh, between different blockchains. Um, it's really hard to you know, compare um, the, the cost of attacking a proof of stake chain versus a proof of work chain, which all have different consensus mechanisms. Um, but also, the, that's, again, as I said, where the bottleneck appears to be, at least to us. Um, and, and we did this by comparing you know, various public chains and using real life data. And when you plot transactions per second as a measure of scale against decentralization or full node count as a measure of decentralization, it's funny in that you see almost a perfect um, negative correlation in that 
um, you have you start hitting TPS limits at different levels of decentralization. Um, so this is essentially the core of this notion. Um, however, the interesting thing to also note is that this isn't a technical limitation in that the more TPS you have, it's not like you suddenly hit a network capacity and there's you know less full nodes that you can that can connect to the network. It's it's rather an economic relationship. Um, and perhaps the best example of this was with the Bitcoin scaling debate in that um, folks didn't want to increase scale because the, the more TPS you have, the more data you have, and hence the more expensive it becomes to run a full node and you end up having less number of full nodes. So it's interesting that you refer to the chart, the one with the negative correlation between the TPS and the number of nodes, which... I don't think it was specified fully in the article, but I think that was what sparked this debate between the two of you on Twitter. So Anatoly, would you like to have your opening statement and then address what was being said by Emery? I think the way I kind of approach this as kind of a thought problem, what is the difference between a blockchain and Postgres running an AWS, right? Because you can have arbitrary nines of safety on AWS. Effectively, like between Google Azure and AWS, you can have as much safety as you can possibly have. In fact, the likelihood of losing data is much more tied to your credit card expiring and that account being closed than the actual hardware failing. So to me, the interesting difference between permissionless networks and the centralized systems is censorship resistance. So uh, what that means in like proof of work in Bitcoin is that there is an economic cost to censor a particular transaction. And because this economic cost in Bitcoin is quite high, right? You're spending hash power. Um, and the opportunity to be a block producer is open and available to anybody with any hash power. It's kind of a system that in a very like genius beautiful construct is eventually censorship resistant. Um, and that, that is something that I think proof of stake networks, including Solana, are going to struggle to replicate. Um, and I think if they fail to replicate in the long term, they will fail to be truly decentralized. So if you take censorship resistance as the key factor, then what you're really optimizing for is the minimum set of nodes in a proof-of-stake network that can halt the network or the liveness threshold. Um, for, some, for most protocols, this is somewhere around 33%. I think avalanches can, can be configured somewhere between 40 and 20, and I think they believe they're running, I think, I don't, I don't know what they're gonna run their network with, but effectively, let's just call it 33%. So if you look at, most proof-of-stake networks today, and you take their stake-weighted nodes and you see what is the smallest set of machines that adds up to 33%, it's not a very large number. You know, IOTA is famous, famously only has one coordinator, but Tezos and Cosmos, in Cosmos it takes about five nodes to get to 33%, with Tezos at seven. And as everybody usually loves to deride EOS, it takes eight <laughs> nodes to, to get to their liveness threshold. So in a lot of ways, EOS is more censorship resistant than any of those systems, than Cosmos or Tezos, even though a lot of folks tend to think of 
those two as being more decentralized. Okay, great. So let's move on to the body of the debate. We have been speaking generally about what decentralization means and the state of decentralization for various other projects. But let's get back to the crux of the disagreement. So one of you thinks that in today's architecture, somehow TPS cannot go up without sacrificing decentralization. And if you think about that in the terms of censorship resistance, then it sounds like basically you're saying if you want to scale, you basically have this problem with onboarding new nodes into the network, right? And I don't think we've actually specified whether we're talking about full nodes or block producing nodes. But regardless, there's a general problem with onboarding these new nodes when you increase the TPS. And then the other person does not agree with that. So maybe we can start having a conversation around that. And maybe starting with Emery. So I, I totally agree with Anatoly in that censorship resistance is the single most important thing. Um, and we can focus on or, or dig deeper on the consensus node side of things, where, as he said, you know, it's the, the level of decentralization and proof of stake is a bit harder to get compared to proof of work. Although I slightly disagree there, um, just to give an example. Um, the, the consensus mechanism that we use at Coda, for example, Ouroboros, or a variant of Ouroboros, which is Cardano, what the Cardano team came up with, you can configure it to have, you know, 46 or up to 49%, I believe, um, threshold. But without going into that, um, the, the one interesting thing about consensus nodes is that those nodes are incentivized to some extent to keep honest or stay honest, right? That's That's the entire reason why you know, let alone proof of work chains, proof of stake chains have at least the, the large or big enough ones have stayed safe up until now. The interesting thing with full nodes, which are kind of on the outside output side of things, are they're not incentivized at all. Um, so that's why it's it becomes harder economically for these folks to keep running and 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 maybe to just double click on why full nodes are important. They they get, keep the game theory in check, right? The game theory that makes public blockchains possible requires that there are as many independent folks as possible that validate the transactions that have been broadcasted and that the correct ones have been actually put inside, into the blocks by block producers. And the faster you can detect any, um, basically any attacks, the, the more resilient your chain is. Um, and, and in that world, and the full nodes obviously have other benefits as well, but in that world, um, full nodes are crucial. And the more you know expensive it gets for them, the the less resilience, censorship resistance, decentralization, pick your you know pick your um, meme you, you have. And 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 that's ultimately why I think again I want to refer back to data also because so many of um, the the statements in our industry ends up in hypotheticals. We, we're just not seeing um, TPS being able to be increased while keep, whilst maintaining decentralization, at least with today's architectures. So if, if these nodes are not participating in consensus, right, they're just processing data, they're just looking at the information on chain, what can they do when there's a double spend? I mean, they're the ones that raise the alert and raise the flag, right, um, and, and say, Look, there's something wrong going on here in the network. How would they do that? By by observing transactions um, in the network, because they're they're a part of the peer-to-peer -peer network of the. Of... But the consensus nodes that are voting are not. 
they are as well but if they're the ones attacking it right then then and if they're if the ones that are honest are not a majority then then it's much harder for these folks to detect that and that they can be shielded away to attack the network right somebody needs to acquire a certain number of keys and then partition like Binance and Coinbase and then double spend in each one and somehow the full nodes that are <laughs> that are part of this network but are voting are able are not getting partitioned right i see like a cognitive dissonance that if there's some amount of honest nodes remaining in the network which is the assumption that every network operates on right then why wouldn't those nodes raise the alarm and if they're not voting nodes right they're just full nodes they don't what does it matter to me like the idea that full nodes that are not participating in consensus count for anything is moot but and this is where our disagreement came from but i think this debate is can you increase decentralization without taking a hit to tps well the way you can increase decentralization right is by increasing tps because fundamentally if your transaction layer is fast enough you can fundamentally use it for consensus like we do and if your tps goes up therefore the number of nodes that participate in consensus goes up and if the number of nodes that participate in consensus goes up and you can spread your stake that smallest set that is required to censor the network goes up as well um so you know imagine 20,000 machines equally split that takes about 6700 machines to hit to that censorship threshold right that 6700 keys an attacker has to take control of in the you know the span of an epoch um to start censoring the network and that is a hard problem <laughs> to like that that's hard to do right um so to me it's actually like i think impossible to build decentralization without increasing tps and i don't think full nodes come into the picture at all because they don't actually improve any interesting feature of decentralization so i i want to jump in here for a second um with a question both Tranatoli and Emre so first of all i'm glad that we all agree that decentralization is kind of like an indicator for censorship resistance so anatoly um i think you said you're saying that only voting nodes really count and they are the one who matters because if somehow an attacker gets some large let's say 40% of the network or something like that what would exactly the non participate like the full nodes who don't participate in the voting what would they do and i think it's not actually accurate two things here one is that you don't actually need to hack the keys in order to get the majority or something like that think that the us government comes out with an executive order saying you're not allowed to do x y and z or allow accept transactions that are touching this wallet or something like that and if a majority of the voting nodes whether that's pow that's pos are following that rule there is a like bitcoin works so well because miners are not coordinating but it is possible to reach like these situations where like more than the 33% are actually doing something malicious like it's not that it couldn't happen and agreed 
And I do think, or from my perspective, I'm not entirely sure you're right that not non-voting non-voting nodes or full, let's call them just full nodes it's easier so full nodes who aren't miners and aren't validators they carry their economic weight right it's hard to measure it it's hard to quantify it but if all the major exchanges and all the big businesses who actually utilize blockchains and crypto etc are not going to follow some chain that doesn't follow the rules even if majority of the hash power even if the majority of stake follow that path, then the minority chain, to an extent, can be actually turn out to be the big one or the real one, or I don't know how to call it. So I'm not like, I don't completely agree with you there. On the other hand, and I'd be happy to get your comment on that, but at the same time, I also want to shoot some something towards Emray that is, you're very focused on data, which is great. So I'm fairly, and you came from Intel, which is also great. So I'm fairly certain you can evaluate how much bandwidth, how much storage, how much CPU you need to run a full node. And you'll see that it's very, very little, right? Your home computer can now process 3,000 transactions per second. It's super easy. And if you have Intel's i9, you can do 20,000 transactions per second. And 60 megabit per second link is enough for 15,000 transactions per second. And storage isn't a real issue because A, it's cheap, and B, if you're very limited, you don't actually have to store all the blocks since Genesis, right? You can prune it. You can store the state and only capture, only store the last X blocks. So I'm not sure. I'd be happy for your take on that. Who says that the requirement that like, oh, they'll need to pay more to run full notes. I disagree with that. Like, I don't think that's, that piece is based on data. And I'd be happy to hear both your points. To Yuri, to your, to your latter point, you're preaching to the choir here because that's our whole thesis, that <laughs> by the time anybody ships anything complicated, the hardware costs are going to drop by half again. <laughs> but like this stuff takes so much work to build that Intel and Nvidia and Samsung are just gonna like keep shipping semiconductors, um, but like your your first point is actually like I think there's like a bit of a the tail leading the dog effect in all of these networks, and that when you have something like proof of work, which has I think eventual censorship resistance because it takes constant economic like cost to 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 block transactions, right? Um, the, that effect is that all the folks that are participating in this network that don't have control of this hash power simply shrug their shoulders and say, well, we can't actually censor anything, so we have to accept these transactions, right? They kind of like shrug at the regulators, shrug at the governments and say, well, whoops, <laughs> this, is, this is truly a censorship-resistant network, right? And the theoretical model for censorship-resistant networks has existed in like the end general solutions, you know, since kind of day one, right? It's basically like the thing we're trying to build. Um, and if we solve that in proof of stake, and I don't think any network has, the only way I imagine we solve it is we actually increase that set of keys that must be broken to such a large number that these participants that are holding the the balances, right? They're like clients, the wallets, 
when somebody asked him, I need you to block this, they again, shrugged their shoulders because the network with, you know, 10,000 machines that must be stopped um, for me to do that is kind of impossible for me to do that. Right. <laughs> like I'm, I'm just Binance. How can I go hunt down 10,000 different validators across the entire globe? And that, that to me is like the, the key part, right? Is that, that becomes like this cycle of the users trust the network to be censorship resistant. And because of that, those balances have value. So maybe just to also opine on that point, um, I, I fully agree, by the way, that, you know, further decentralization on both ends is as much needed. Um, I think the, the main crux of our notion has been that there's been so much more work you know, thanks to, you know, amazing teams like Solana and, and many others that have been done on the consensus node side, that that part has stopped be becoming the bottleneck and the other side, the full node side now has become the bottleneck. And again, the disagreement is basically whether you need it or not. Um, so let me let me touch upon that point that um, you, you made on the second front. Um, so first of all um yes like if you are a node that's already connected to the network it's relatively cheap on a home desktop machine that's i9 and has a gpu and has an ssd yada 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 right um but we live in a mobile age um and you, you want as many people as possible to be able to easily connect and become a full node in these networks um whether or not you want to invest all the way there is another question but um it is it is a it is a fact that not everyone has that same level of power. The problem again, I think, further increases when you consider the fact that not everyone will always stay connected to these networks. So you'll always have this issue of folks dropping out and then you know have to catch up in between. Um, and and just to give a real life example, there you know um, Jameson Lop I think runs these tests every year of like how long it takes to sync a full Bitcoin full note from scratch. And I think the latest one was six hours, again, using a $2,000 desktop machine. It's not terrible, but, um, you know, not everyone has six hours on there and, and a $2,000 desktop on their hand. Um, and then on the other side, um, whether or not you need actually to sync the entire chain. Um, yes, I think there's many differing points of view here, but, you know, the, the notion of like clients and SPV nodes, et cetera, has been, has been a topic probably since Bitcoin existed at this point, um, and it's still not concluded, right? People still um, condone. And again, this is more or less a school of thought at this point. So we can definitely argue about this, but that um, full nodes are required for a trustless access to a chain. And um, trust is, a you know, in our society these days is an eroding concept. So we are of the belief that if you can, it's best to be a full node on the network. And one last point, um, one of my pet peeves is this notion of Moore's law. Um, so, you know, being someone who at the past life was living and breathing this notion being at Intel. Um, Moore's law's future is uncertain in my opinion, right? Uh, again, this is another school of thought thing, but we're about to hit um, the, the limits of physics. And even before that, um, things are not doubling up every year or every other year, every two years. Um, so that's also another thing that I believe is not is not for granted. And thus we should just do our best to be able to using, you know, some more breakthrough technologies to be able to ensure as many full nodes as possible. So if I just take a moment to conclude the two points that you brought up, um, starting from the latter one, Emre, you're pretty much saying that 
yes, you can do that, and it is it isn't terribly hard to achieve that. But if this if we want this to be as decentralized as possible, well, now people have smartphones, and you want them to be able to do that on the, like the like the frontier always keeps like getting further and further. So if we want real decentralization or as much decentralization as possible, then yes, maybe you can. Maybe it's not an issue on desktops or not a major issue, but now we actually want that on mo mobile. So it's even more decentralized. And Anatoly, your point was that, yes, we are, it's not only that the voting nodes are important, it's also the non-voting nodes that, like you accept, they are also substantial and important, um, right? My point was that, Without censorship resistance in the core level, the non-voting votes don't matter. And this is kind of like a tail wagging the dog. But the reason that they are even have a, a voice in Bitcoin is because Bitcoin is eventually censorship resistant. But for that to be true in a proof of stake network, you actually have to increase the censorship resistance set of the voting nodes in the proof of stake network. And the only way to do that is to increase CPS. Fundamentally, like it, because those things depend on how many cryptographic messages per second they verify from everyone else in the network. These are both good points. I think we basically agree. Like that's the that's the joke here, right? We need more decentralization, and you guys are attacking it from like, well, if everybody's a full node, that's a lot easier to achieve, right? Uh, we're trying to increase the number of messages per second any of the consensus nodes can verify, right? And at the end of the day, it's the same thing. I think one one notion that you kind of uh, mentioned is this idea, do white clients matter or not? And uh, this is kind of like, I think, the fundamental debate between weak and strong subjectivity. And full node verification is like a requirement for strong subjectivity, right? Like you have to verify the entire ledger from the start to the finish. When you get to that result, you know that this network is sound. I don't know if this is going to be possible in Solana ever, right? So we've given up on strong subjectivity from day one and kind of took the full approach of weak subjectivity where anytime somebody joins the network, they use Tofu, right? Trust in first use. And as long as they maintain that connection, right, they can continue running it. And then like clients and SPV and all this other stuff is the fun fundamental way how everyone else reads the network. Um, so I think there's like interesting uh, differences there, like really fundamentally philosophical differences. Yeah, I, I think Anatoly, you hit on a lot, lot of good points there. Um, one of our core beliefs and bets like of the of the entire Coda project as well as before my time has been that um, cryptography is increasing at a pace, specifically zero knowledge proofs, and that in achieving this end result is gonna be possible without taking too much of a hit on performance. Um, we are seeing some empirical data there, um, like a lot, like literally a hockey stick growth in, in these, in the performance of these proofs. Um, but it's also interesting that obviously, you know, since you're adding compute overhead because they're cryptographically more advanced operations, one without such a baggage will always be faster, but it becomes then the question of is, is the latter one, right, decentralized enough to be able to support the most I don't want to say valuable before lack of a better word, um, like the, the use cases with the most dollar value attached to it, at least in terms of transaction 
um, value. Um, and there, I, I still believe um, taking some hit on TPS for further decentralization will will be important. And again, I you know I, I love as Yuri says sticking to data if possible. That's that's what just we're we're seeing today, right? Like from again EOS and Tron and some of these other networks are obviously of a different nature, but um, they they just haven't been able to create as much value as as the two decentralized chains. So I wanted to touch upon one point that Andre mentioned about Moore's law. So I know this was also touched upon in our previous debate, Anatoly, and I think this is also related to a concept of hardware decentralization that you mentioned on Twitter. Can you elaborate on that point in the context of today's debate? People typically talk about Moore's law, right? Some people get confused and think about frequency scaling where the speed of the underlying kind of transistor technology gets faster and faster. In reality, it's just how many, how much silicon do we have available to us for compute? This is kind of the crux of it. And Moore's law in that sense is not going to stop because the wafer sizes are going to increase, the yields are going to get better, the number of chips that they can stack, right? And now vertically and a single die is going to increase. And those optimizations are going to continue kind of growing at a, at a pace that they've been going at, I think, till my, the end of my children's lifetimes, right? Like I think to the, my grandkids might not see the end of that. Um, because those all fundamentally increase the number of context-free, right, computation that doesn't overlap in state, right? How, how many single instruction, multiple data stuff can we do? How many vector dot products we can do? Like literally, if, if, if humanity stops figuring out how to scale vector dot products, we should all be working in bunker coin <laughs> because this is where we effectively predict the future, right? And optimize our decisions and economy and everything else that we do. Um, so from my perspective, I think Moore's law in that sense is going to continue going. And that is very much applicable to consensus and smart contracts platforms because like we've demonstrated, we can easily define this problem as a set of non-overlapping operations, right, over a common censorship-resistant kind of messaging layer. So you have our, our capacity to handle the nodes is based on non-overlapping computation, more, mostly. So it's horizontally scalable. So as core counts increase, as number of lanes and the GPU cards increase, we can basically add more validators. So we can increase the censorship-resistant set. Um, to the limit. And I think that's going to continue indefinitely. And this applies to some extent to both like wired communication, like fiber and memory bandwidth and even wireless. So 5G is this horizontally scaled 4G sort of because it uses, you know, a dozen different connections at the same time and multipath routing. Um, and these approaches are like going to continue, right? People are going to go from I don't know, what, what is DDR5, right, in terms of memory bandwidth, right? It's double a DDR4. Yeah, so uh, I, I won't go into the Moore's Law debate. I, it's probably as, if not more, you know, uh, discussed as, you know, like when ETH2 will ship or, or something like that. Um, but, um, and I do agree, you know, if, if Moore's Law ends up being a thing, then we have much larger problems as a society. That being said, I think 
it's not the the right framing for where we are as an industry because it's not like we're all happy and, and sufficient where we are as long as we can double let's say tps or any sort of performance metric for a blockchain as long as we can double it every year like we already have probably a thousand x or ten thousand x or whatever leap um, i mean you know solana has awesome um, tps performance numbers but Again, in, in our perspective of being a, at a per decentralization unit of decentralization level, we have thousands of X of improvements we believe we need to make. So it's not like we're happy with how much hardware capacity is available. Um, and, and that's why we believe, you know, Moore's Law is not kind of the right level of framing here. Uh, when we get there, sure. But we have just so much more to catch up than being satisfied with doubling every year. So first of all, I have to say it's so much fun to sit on a, on a discussion with someone like an ex-Intel guy, an ex-Qualcomm guy. You know what you're talking about. It's super refreshing. When you're talking about Moore's Law and is this the right framework to think about, is it not? I want to ask the same question, but from a different perspective. Let's assume that increasing TPS hits decentralization. Is this at all relevant Yes, you won't be able to do the trillions of trillions of transactions that you could do on AWS in a decentralized setup. But if you could do just, you know, just billions, maybe it's enough. Maybe just a million, which again is a percentile of a percentile of a percentile. Maybe that's enough. So is this discussion at all relevant? Can we achieve enough with a good level of decentralization? Is it really worth discussing? Is this a theoretical question or does it actually affect the real blockchains that we're helping design here? I have a short one there and then I'll let Anatoly, um, but like, I think it's not like we're asking, oh, like, wouldn't it be so great if we had just like twice performance improvement, right? We're, we're asking like today and for have been for a number of years, like for so much more. Um, so that's why I believe it's like, we're not, um, at a hardware limitation, we're not bounded by hardware. We're bounded by like the fundamental architecture of how these things are designed. In that, you know, one other pet peeve I have about our industry is that we call these things like, you know, Ethereum, Ethereum calls itself the world computer. It's a terrible computer. Um, so maybe it, that's the wrong way to think of them. Maybe they're not computers. Maybe, you know, folks have called them trust machines. Maybe they are a different type of machine and we need to think of them differently. But yeah, that's my short spiel on, the, on this topic. I guess fundamentally, like I am trying to brute force this problem because you guys can imagine a, a difference in level of security if the the set of machines that we need to break into is you know eight or below, like EOS and every other proof of stake network, or two thousand, right? If we actually have a globally distributed set of nodes that have very tiny stakes, right? And the, the thirty, the minimum thirty-three percent. It takes two thousand machines all over the world for you to fly around it and go break into, for that network to be just, you know, to have a liveness hit. That network has achieved a level of security that I think it would be foolish to use anything else if it was fast enough. And I think the only way to achieve that level of security is again by driving it into Moore's law where network cards and bandwidth and memory and CPUs continue scaling and leveraging that to do more cryptographic operations per second, just for the managing the consensus set. And this isn't even like 
I'm not even talking about TPS for users. What I'm talking about is figuring out how to create this like censorship resistant set of computers at such an extreme degree that um, it is impossible. No, It's basically, you know, like the odds of breaking into that thing are like the odds of the universe collapsing. Um, <laughs> uh, how do we do that, right? Like uh, to me, it seems like the only viable way to do it and truly maintain security is just by using hardware because it's fast enough for a lot of things already, right? Like for our network, we generate two and a half messages per second per validator, right? So if you have 50,000 TPS, which you mentioned would roughly be like 150 megabits Mbps, which is widely available everywhere, right? That's 20,000 computers. We can get them all equally staked, which is a, the hardest problem. I think the social impact of that, how do we get all these people that stake their validators and end up with like this high concentration of wealth in like just the top four or five machines? How do we actually get them to spread it out across this entire set, right? But that is to me the harder problem to solve. If we can solve that, then we have the world computer. Um, and it runs in a like what, 200 megabit connection, <laughs> right? Which is basically nothing, right? Um, that, that, that's kind of like how I, I view this problem. Um, and I, I think that if you take the, the step away from proof of work, away from pure object, objectively measured, kind of like we will start from the genesis and we compute the entire state and this is the social truth. If you take it, that's, if you take that leap, you basically have to go all the way to where we're at. You have to build something that is so censorship resistant that is uh, like unfathomable for it to be broken. And to be fair, like I think zero knowledge proofs might be a path there as well. So it, it may be possible that like the Coda approach is just as viable because I can imagine a world where you have a, a hundred million iPhones that have a copy of the ledger, right? And the zero knowledge proof. And even if they're not all communicating to agree on this, right? The fact that those copies exist and the statistical likelihood of all of them being correct is so high that that in itself is a measurable censorship resistant network, you know, even, even if the consensus mechanism isn't, isn't like leveraging it, um, that is an interesting experiment to run, right? Anything can happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say maybe, you know, one of my favorite parts of this debate is that both projects come at the problem from the exact opposite ends. Um, and I think Anatoly probably goes to, you know, that, that point you made about weak versus strong objectivity and, and how it implies censorship resistance. Um, yeah, so it is indeed an interesting, and I think the, what, what will be interesting to see is like which of the two approaches accrue more value, not in the like, you know, network valuation sense, but perhaps more in the like, you know, the aggregate value of the, the different applications that are created on these platforms or, you know, the, the tokenized assets, et cetera. That's, that's one thing I'm, I'm looking forward to see. Okay. By the way, Anatoly, one thing you mentioned on Twitter is that Solana takes a linear hit on TPS for node counts. I feel this translates to user TPS capacity goes up if node counts go down. Does this not go to show that TPS comes at the expense of decentralization? 
Yeah, but the capacity goes up exponentially every two years, right? So if it's a linear hit versus an exponential, it's kind of insignificant. Right. This goes back to your argument about how on the back of hardware performance increase, in general, what we just talked about, that effect will be trumped by the hardware performance increase. Yeah, even at current state of affairs, right, the 5G rollout is going to put a one gigabit device in everyone's hands, <laughs> right, globally. Um, so the backhaul to, to handle that is going to be enormous. And the fiber to the data centers that support all of the stuff and like the interconnect across the entire globe is going to just dramatically increase. And bandwidth is like kind of the more constrained resource in in uh, the messaging side of, of, of consensus. I think compute is more or less already insignificant. Uh, we went from using four GPU cards, 1080 Ti's to one uh, in the span of two years because there was both a architecture improvement and process improvement. So maybe just to reel back a little bit, if I may summarize the issues that you guys have touched upon in relation to the debate topic today, I feel that the main disagreement is still in whether decentralization is a matter of censorship resistance for block producing nodes or the democratization via onboarding as many full nodes as possible. Because in Solana's approach, it just seems that there's going to be limits in terms of hardware for the full nodes to be able to get on board because of the hardware constraints. On the other hand, the Coda approach, which basically says that you can run a full node in a phone browser, that would obviously boost the amount of full nodes very, very easily. So am I right in summarizing the crux of the disagreement right now being whether decentralization is a concept of just the censorship resistance concept in relation to block producing nodes versus whether there's a need to expand and include as many full nodes as possible? I think so. And one other thing I would add is full nodes also help with, you know, just being able to give state to any user that wants to use the block blockchain, right? Um, so just think of an example of today's world in Ethereum where, you know, take your favorite dApp and, and, and you're an average user, you know, who just has MetaMask and doesn't otherwise know how to use a blockchain. You just want to get that sweet interest rate from a DeFi protocol. Um, you, you essentially connect to the chain and get your state from, you know, a whole sorts of a suite of uh, middleware providers whom, whom all are like these full nodes and even worse archive nodes on the chain. Um, one, one benefit that we believe the, the succinct blockchain approach with, which Coda has brings is that um, every single one of those users can trustlessly, you know, get their state from the chain. Um, just because they have to download the small proof and, and that's how they're able to be able to be a full node. So not only you know does it, again, in our approach of having stronger objectivity um, provide much better censorship resistance, but it also makes the whole, maybe not the UX because that's usually shrouded from the end user, um, but especially for developers, the whole de developer experience just becomes easier because they're able to provide a better UX ultimately to their end users. So, Henry, aside from Solana, what are some other chains you're looking at right now that you don't think have the capability of adding significant amount of full nodes without compromising the TPS? Barring the ones I'm not aware, I think this is an issue or a challenge, not an issue, but a challenge 
if you want to have strong objectivity that every other blockchain has or every other traditional blockchain architecture has because the fundamental issue is about becoming a full node, right? And the only way to become a full node is to download the entire chain and, and verify it yourself. Whereas with a succinct chain that uses a zero-knowledge proof to do the same thing, the beauty of it is that there's only that, that verification is only done once and you have a proof or more like a certificate that says, hey, this verification was done correctly and here you go, you can check it for yourself, right? Um, it's, we, we do see other teams trying to tackle this, the, this, this problem of becoming a succinct blockchain, but to our knowledge, you know, Coda is the, the furthest ahead. Um, so in that case, that's why we're seeing, you know, this as a different approach. So Coda is still proof of stake based, right? So you guys did dip your toes into weak subjectivity because you don't know if I have a long range attack that's generated multiple versions of this full node. Yes and no, um, in that the variant of Ouroboros we're using um, has formal proof, you know, against this long range attack um, problem. I can't fully explain it myself, but yeah. If I have a supermajority of the keys at any point of the chain, right? A supermajority of the discarded keys, then I can always generate a, a different diverging fork. But if, if I have a, like, but there's no, there's no way to, to work around that problem. In a proof of stake chain, you mean? Yeah. As long as, if I'm able to get a supermajority of the stake weight, some point in time of the network of old discarded keys, then I can generate a divergent fork from which which is indistinguishable. So that that's kind of like, right? Because what is measuring the weight of any of these things, right? And consensus is in proof of stake networks is weighted cryptographic signatures and proof of work, it's real electricity. If there's no physical energy being spent to secure the network, then it is somewhat weakly subjected. Yes, I believe. In a, in, a, in a fork case, you are correct, though. I'll be honest, I'm not the consensus expert in our in our team, so may have to go back. But yeah, maybe you're right. It's not entirely like strong objectivity in that, you know, a, a for example, assume a proof of work chain version of Coda. Yes, that, that would be maybe bulletproof. Um, but the, the guarantees that we get out of Ouroboros have given us comfort that, you know, a, a full note that's verified by a ZK snark gives us very similar properties. This is like where I think like the rubber hits the road, right? Is if you have a bajillion like, like clients out there that may have a full copy of the ledger and somehow they're corrupted, right? And now there's divergent full copies of this thing. What is the social truth, right? Ah, uh, I see what you mean. You're going to, you're going to go to the consensus nodes and ask him. Uh, so at the end of the day, right, you kind of have similar problems like any proof of stake network. Um, and I'm not sure that a full node adds that much additional weight versus a partial node that just generates some fraction of the state, right? Because like any other, not like any network, Ethereum or anything, or us included, if I have a particular application, right, like one of our clients, they filter out the transactions they don't care about, they only look for the ones that do, and they maintain their own copies of effectively a state machine and index them and do whatever they want with them. So if there is like, you know, if if, if somehow we, we're under, we get 
attacked and every key that's out there that's in consensus gets destroyed, when they do state reconciliation with the chain, they'll stop, right? All the exchanges will halt. Yeah, so the, the way we actually prevented a majority of that problem is um, Coda has this notion, which we call a transition frontier, in which um, they, the canonical proof, which we identify as a, a, the capability to become a full node is provided after, you know, X number of blocks after which there's like 99, like couple nines of, of, um, of guarantee of, um, of settlement. Um, so we, yeah, we prevent a bit of that issue, but yeah, I'm not going to say it's hundred percent because to your point, um, yeah, proof of work chains are the only ones that can provide that. However, um, we believe this transition frontier concept provides much of the benefits without having to burden the user with having to fully download the entire chain. What value does a full node copy provide over somebody that's just storing the hashes, the root, the like the the Merkle hashes of the entire chain? Well, the latter is what what is identified as an SPV client essentially, right? In that you just provide you just prove those Merkle roots. Um, but are unable to verify the, the each individual transaction yourself, which to be frank in a U3XO model matters more, but is also important in account based blockchain. Anatoly, could you maybe for you know for our listeners, I think because this is going a lot back and forth, could you make broad yet concise okay. what your argument here rather than in small questions? I, I think full nodes are by definition like full nodes that are not participating in consensus don't provide additional security because when kind of shit hits the fan, you end up with kind of trusting and reconciling the state amongst the consensus nodes and the financial parties involved. Like if you had USDT on your platform, the real source of truth is going to be the ledger that USDT uses to reconcile against your network. They're not going to care what the client nodes say, right? If they contradict what USDT has, they're simply not going to care. So let me just play the devil's advocate here, or maybe clarify some of those things. You're asking, well, what's the difference if you have just a full node or, or just an SPV or a light client who just keeps the hashes of everything? What if you're thinking about the full nodes? Well, the full nodes are following the rules. And if they receive some, like, like, you know, a new block signed by all the stake or like the necessary, like the two thirds, and that has a double spend or something illegal or spending without the right signature or something like that, they would halt. They would see that and would not accept it at all because they can see what the rules are and what the rules aren't. If you're just following and kind of like grabbing, I think the state and kind of, with, without being able to see what's really happening, you might not be able to see that. Okay, here's like a realistic attack vector, right? You have somebody partitions Coda and you have Coinbase and Binance on one side and a bunch of random users, 100 million light clients on the other. And they partition the network and get a hold of a supermajority of the keys and they produce diverging blocks and Coinbase and Binance gets one set of state and everybody else gets the other. What is going to be the real coda a week later after everybody figures out what happened? I think the benefit here is not in obvious 
petitions are obvious attacks. It's more in you know controversial ones um, where in a, similar to what you were saying earlier, I believe it's it's giving the users the ability to choose which which partition they are on, right? Um, so yes, in an obvious one where like you know there's hundreds like the majority clear supermajority residing on exchanges, if that's the case, then yes, that one wins. But what happens in a more controversial one? The notion of everyone being a full node gives people the choice. If it's the other way around, then you basically have to go with whatever if you're an SPV node or you know just a normal, yeah, not even a node. You don't get to pick. That's a very fair point, but I think that matters more when you don't have Coinbase or Binance on one side, on the same side. <laughs> if all the exchanges are equally split, then which one wins? Um, it's probably the one with the most uh, active users, which is a very weak subjectivity way to decide. <laughs> But yeah, there is a meta subjectivity topic there that's more on the social layer. But um, yeah, I think like the, the different approach philosophically that we have is maybe doesn't apply to the world today where a majority of the tokens on a, on a blockchain sit on exchanges. But, you know, in a, in a future utopia, which we're all going for, where everyone is able to independently join these networks and, and do whatever they want, I think it becomes a bit more important in that case. Hey guys, I have a naive question. What is the significance of Coinbase and Binance in Anatoly's stylized example? That's where the majority of the wealth is stored, right? My point is that the meme of that Tether is going to decide the real Ethereum, right? That it doesn't matter what the Ethereum community does. The real Ethereum is the one that has USDT on it. Is that really the case? Do you think everybody would agree with that statement? This is again like a thing of the tail wagging the dog. Right. Like, I think the community needs to build something that is viable for USDT to migrate to. And until that happens, you're going to have this kind of very, very hard migration of from ETH1 to ETH2 that's going to be very slow and painful. But that is an interesting point. Like, question actually, when you think of it again, like a hypothetical example, Tether's bank accounts are frozen, and the only way Tether, the company, can unlock them is. They say we agree to freeze half of the accounts because they're doing things the government doesn't want. Then, and if there's a fork of Ethereum, um, right, um, where actually this is a bad example now that I think of it because the money is actually in the bank account. So, but think of this in the MakerDAO case, right? Um, you know, it has, you know, DAI gets frozen because um, the government takes over. Then wouldn't it be the case that? Um, the, the fork that the majority of the users prefer ends up being the, the winning fork? Yeah, I mean, for Dai's case, <laughs> if it works, depends on the value of Ethereum. So the Ethereum fork that wins, I think, is going to be the one that exchanges accept for ETH, right? And, and are able to transact that fork with, with USDT. <laughs> Again, I, <laughs> so I think, to your point, I think it, it is... Even though it's very easy to kind of like poke holes and say that exchanges or these big financial institutions decide, I don't think they actually do. I think the protocols and the constructs and the kind of the social force of knowing that everybody has the same full copy and understands this particular state machine to have concluded that this is the source of truth, I think that's what pulls it all together. And obviously, if there is a way to implement this with zero knowledge proofs, I think that's a very powerful tool that I have no doubt will succeed. 
Awesome. So let's move on to the audience question section. We have one question, and it's sort of unrelated to the debate today, but it's still relevant for the blockchain space. So this person is asking, what are your thoughts on the impact on the notoriety of crypto from the Twitter attack that just happened? I think there's two views. Um, one of them is that despite this clearly being a hack about on Twitter and then just the hackers using the, the soundest money they think there is, the media portrays it as a crypto scam, right? Um, and, and it just, I think, shows how early we still are. Friends were asking me, and one example I use like if if a thousand years a year ago, like a Gen Genoese like bank was you know broken into, would people call it a gold attack? Probably not. It, it would have been a bank from. So that's one one perspective. The other one I think is which is kind of interesting, but you know any publicity is good publicity. Um, like even today, after you know the hack is not resolved, obviously, but you know Biden, Joe Biden was tweeting like, "I'm not going to ask for Bitcoin, but please donate to my campaign." <laughs> so people, you know, hear more and more about Bitcoin. So in a way, maybe it is a good thing. Um, but I think overall, this is still showing that how much the entire space has still to seen to be seen more legitimate and 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 as a as a thing that is here to stay. Okay, great. How about you, Anatoly? I would largely agree with Amre. I think <laughs> this attack just seems really weird that somebody that had access to all of these accounts would do this kind of a, the lowest bottom feeder form of, of a crypto scam when they could have done a million things. <laughs> yeah, it just seemed, it, it's a dumb thing. I don't know what it says about Twitter and Twitter probably being our true censorship resistant <laughs> network, right? The only one that we have. And that maybe the the way we resolve forks is whoever wins the Twitter battle, right? Well, for me, I, I think the issue actually sort of brought to light this other threat to crypto and Bitcoin in particular. And that is nation state attacks. And this was featured on one of the previous debates so Joe Biden was tweeting about it. Politicians were paying attention to this. And there's this whole narrative about how if Bitcoin did not exist, untraceable criminal activities like this would not be as easy. So the counter argument there is, well, Bitcoin isn't the problem. The criminals are the problem, right? But I think the issue here is that Bitcoin seems to make it easier to hide the criminal activities. At least it makes it really easy for the government to basically garner political capital and public support if they want to attack Bitcoin for their benefit. So I'm really curious from you guys' perspective, the projects that you guys are working on, what kind of additional censorship resistance are you offering that is different from the kind being provided by Bitcoin? And how does your project guard against this nation state attack? Yeah, so the, the one angle we have is something I alluded to earlier in that um, currently the way many people use Bitcoin or any other blockchain, right, is to use the centralized gateways. Um, you know, the easiest ones being exchanges such as Coinbase. But, you know, even if it's not that, you know, you, you use a wallet provider or you go to a website to sign a transaction from. Very few people actually, right, connect to the network and um, either via becoming a full node or SPV, um, and and you know send a transaction or host their wallet there. Um, so if if you know as you said tomorrow the U.S. government decided that all right it's illegal to provide Bitcoin services to anyone in the U.S., then then how do these people access the network? 
um, not a lot of people will be able to become a full node and then you know just connect to it directly. So and and in this case, even SPV nodes have an issue, right? Because they are by definition providing a Bitcoin service, um, so they are actually doing something illegal. Which there will always be, you know, folks who figure out how, but it, it just becomes much harder. So in that way, you know, Coda, the, what we're working on enables folks to not have to rely on these centralized gatekeepers. So there's a clear benefit there, which we have fortunately, right, not not seen um, a dire need to because there's, the, you know, there's no su no such legal issue. Um, and if it does end up being a case, we have a lot of more problems than. Um, Coda being a solution to this. Um, but yeah, we believe that this does indeed provide an extra added benefit in terms of censorship resistance. Okay, great. How about you, Anatoly? I don't really worry about state-level attacks. I, <laughs> I honestly think that that's just kind of not a problem. Well, wait, can you elaborate on why you think it's not a problem? I mean, from there's incentives for them to attack and there's means to attack. Why? So... <laughs> we were going into a different debate now, but the incentive would be, you know, there's AML and terrorism funding of child pornographers and so forth. And then obviously there's also the threat to the status of fiat currency, you know, undermining the government's capability of controlling the monetary system. So there's that's the incentive. The means would be if we were talking about Bitcoin, then that would be, say, seizing of mining facilities prohibition of on-ramp, off-ramp, and also just political narratives. Basically, Donald Trump tweeting about how Bitcoin is facilitating all these terrible activities and therefore basically using his rhetoric to drive down the price, which would affect security. All those attacks are much more complicated than the state like and the tools that it has at its disposal to find the bad guys. Like, like if they really wanted to, right? If the United States government thought that somebody, you know, that there was enough illegal activity occurring in Binance, how long do you think Binance would stay operational? So you're basically making an argument about the competence or resource of the government? In a national security sense, Bitcoin is not an issue for United States, no matter how much dollar-denominated value it accrues. Because... The dollar is what it's valued against, and it's effectively no different than Amazon stock or or gold. None of that matters, right? Like, I think the the U.S. government, if they wanted to, could find whoever they want. If they're using Bitcoin, it's even easier because they can effectively like have cryptographic proof that that's the person that's doing the bad stuff, right? It, it's like an immutable public ledger. I think it's the dumbest play like way to to do anything with uh with like illegal financial activity, like at a large scale. Can I question that? Let's imagine, but any country suffering a major crisis to its local currency, people moving to alternative solutions, black markets, all these kind of things, or smaller economies of less developed countries, which are slowly being eaten by alternative currencies, which are better. It's fairly easy to think of a scenario where state actors, not necessarily the biggest states, but even smaller states have a lot of resources at their disposal, say, oh, we want to stop this from happening, whether that's to directly attack, whether we want to prevent our people from using it, these kind of things. And if you think of cryptocurrencies similar to BitTorrent, 
Well, BitTorrent was only, you know, threatening the large media companies, etc. So it was a failed attempt to take it down or to stop, you know, illegal streaming, etc. But the, the stakes here are much higher. I don't remember who it was who tweeted about saying, you know, countries have went to war for much smaller things. So I'm a bit surprised at your approach that, oh, I'm not really interested or think state actors. So, so is, is Venezuela going to attack our validators inside Europe and America? And I'll give you a different example. Um, think of Egypt before the, the Arab Spring. Like, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, with the details, but ge- so, so generally speaking, what happened is that there was a lot of unrest over the internet and forums, etc. And then Mubarak, um, decided to try to shut down the internet. And what happened then in Egypt, which is super interesting, regardless, is that, well, people couldn't complain about it, you know, on the internet, so they went to the streets. So that didn't work well for Mubarak. But generally speaking, think of the great Chinese firewall. Think about countries shutting down their own internet networks, preventing people from talking with outsiders, which means that if you're participating in the consensus, you're being thrown out of the consensus. It, it not necessarily bring the system down, but it does partition it. And if you're thinking about China specifically, there's quite, or really any major economical like center, you'll have big chunks of the network which could be shut down. So I'm not saying that they will come for Coinbase and try to take down, I don't know, Ethermine or something like that, but Attack vectors are there, and it might affect not only the consensus but users. I think the the small countries will see any of these networks as an extension of the the big powers. That they're, they're kind of like like effectively like any use of Bitcoin outside of the United States is equivalent to using the dollar. Because at the end of the day, what are most people do with it is they dump their local currency, get Bitcoin, because that somewhere can be changed into dollars or yen for some extent or euros right so like i i don't don't see those kinds of attack vectors uh, as of a concern of the big powers and all the validators and every all these networks are basically run inside us europe china right (laughs) so so effectively like i i just not a concern and all these powers have much more effective tools to get to whatever they want than trying to, to to go censor like a validator, right? Are they going to go after bison trails? But but Anatoly, I think I disagree on that as well. With what same angle as what Yuri said, and that it's about access, not about consensus attacks. And um, and and this happens, right? Like countries in in monetary regimes where the the country's own fiat currency is having whenever it's having challenges. Um, other foreign currencies, the popular ones like USD becomes illegal. And yeah, you're right. Maybe it's not that, you know, they care about Bitcoin because ultimately people want US dollars. But if the easiest way to get US dollars is Tether on Ethereum, then, you know, who says they won't shut down Ethereum? Um, not shut down Ethereum, sorry, but shut down access to Ethereum, right? Via, as I as I gave an example, like just passing a law that says no company in our on our, on our borders, inside of our borders can provide service for this. In that case, this this becomes the need for a network more like BitTorrent becomes I think more pressing because again the reason BitTorrent was resilient was that you know anyone could connect to it all you needed is is a software client which you can you know get from anywhere the like client will serve the purpose just as well 
but but again, like clients, again, you need to get data from others, which end up being service providers, in which case they are also doing something illegal, which I agree is, is a bit harder to crash, right? It's a bit harder to identify, but it's still it's still something. They're outside of the borders, right? Like, is, is Egypt going to shut down Infura or like every other version of Infura and every other provider, right? If it's on the internet, there's a way to connect to it. Well, it depends on the size of the country. Then they can put pressure on whichever country is hosting hosting the service. Yeah, so it it just becomes a tail risk. If you're not in trouble with US, Europe, or China, it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, nothing else matters. If you're in trouble with one of those, nothing will help you. So, <laughs> so this is why I'm not worried about those attacks, right? Like I, I just don't care. Yeah, I, I think, again, that this becomes more of a matter of global politics, um, in which case, my view is the world we are used to is is rather fast ceasing to be the reality. Um, and, you know, trust in the, the order of things and in institutions is degrading. So it's better if we're able to provide direct access to these technologies to each individual. But I agree, that's that's that may not be there today. But I think, again, a worldview discussion is that I my view is that we're getting there in, a, in an uncomfortably fit, fast pace. Okay, that's actually a great segue into our uh, concluding remarks. So it's been a fascinating debate. Thank you guys both for coming on. And thanks, Yuri, for being the gracious co-host. So maybe let's get you guys the concluding remarks and just say a few things to synthesize your thoughts, maybe some things you picked up from your opponent during the debate, starting with Anatoly. I think that... Andre makes kind of a really strong case for the, the duplication of data for full nodes and the actual replication of that can create network effects that maintain a level of security and censorship resistance uh, outside of consensus. And that is something that I think shouldn't be overlooked. Um, so I, I will definitely, uh, I, I, I didn't think that before this debate, but talking to him, I, I have much stronger convi convictions of that, that it's possible to achieve those those, uh, those goals. Okay, great. How about you, Amri? Yeah, I appreciate that, Anatoly. And um, from the same perspective, I think what's been new to me is that Solana's perspective of, hey, look, if you are okay with weak subjectivity and a more pragmatic view of the world as it is today, then it is possible to achieve way more performant um, blockchains than, than you know, it, without having to necessarily require perfect um, decentralization at the at the full node side of things. Okay, perfect. Your any concluding remark from you? All I want to do now is grab Anatolian Emery and grab a beer with them and talk about like the networking layer. This has been great fun for me. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you for your insights, Henri and Anatoly. Maybe we'll have you back on a nation state attack debate at some point. Um, <laughs> how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, on our end, uh, my Twitter is E-T-E-K-I-S, or my first last name. And um, to, for more on Coda, they can visit codaprotocol.com. Great. Anatoly? I am A.E. Yakovenko on Twitter, um, but Anatoly at Solana.com if you want to send me an email. Or just go to solana.com to find anything and everything you need to know about our network. Perfect. And Yuri? Yeah, just Google Uri and Blocks route and you'll find me either on Twitter or on our website. It's easy to find. 
Perfect. Well, thank you guys. So, listeners, we would love to hear from you and to have you join the debate via Twitter. Definitely look out for the vote in post debate poll. Also, feel free to leave your comments on Twitter. We look forward to seeing you in future episodes of the Blockchain Debate Podcast. Consensus optional. Proof of thought required. Thank you, gents. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Andre and Anatoly for coming on the show, and thanks again to Yuri for co-hosting. What was your takeaway from the debate? Don't forget to vote in our post-debate Twitter poll. This will be live for a few days after the release of this episode, and feel free to say hi or post feedback for our show on Twitter. If you like the show, don't hesitate to give us five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to this, and be sure to check out our other episodes with a variety of debate topics: Bitcoin store of value status, the legitimacy of smart contracts, DeFi, POW versus POS, and so on. Thanks for joining us on the debate today. I'm your host Richard Yan, and my Twitter is Genso09, G-E-N-T-S-O-09. Our show's Twitter is Block Debate. See you at our next debate.